Alrighty, Jacob. So for today's episode, I wanted to discuss the concept of Torah. So maybe we'll just start, you know, right off the bat. What is Torah? So Torah is not a history book and it's not a science book. It's a book to moralize our inner and outer self. It's a guide how to live the most out of life. It's a guide how to live life. Um, one fundamental element of Torah is that it didn't come from within. It was a gift from without. It wasn't one man or a consensus of conjecture or research. It was a gift from without that was brought into the system. Okay, so, so, so as a precursor to even discussing the, the concept of the Torah, you're saying that one thing to establish is that is this idea that it was a communication from that which transcends the system, which in the previous episodes we arrived at, at, at being God, um, a communication from God which transcends the system into the system itself, which is our, our local universe. Um, and, and that that communication from the outside in is an essential piece um, uh, uh, of what the Torah is. Right, it's it's not something that will waver with consensus. So, it's so something that's coming to communicate. Yeah. So, so let me ask you. Um, you know, wh why is this necessary? Like, you know, we have. If you think about, for example, the history of science, um, and, and the and the modern developments, um, that we've made. You know, just in terms of like the technology revolution that we've had. Um, you know, those are direct outgrowths of revolutions in our in our scientific understanding of the world and just like you know through the continuous application of the scientific methodology we've been able to continuously upgrade our ideas of the world um why why can't we do the same thing in the domain of ethics or a system of living that you're calling the torah i think one thing to consider is that uh, although science has been extremely useful and powerful as a tool for technology and such, but in terms of the world of ethics and morality, it has really made almost no contribution at all. And in fact, uh, the scientist, if he's pro-eugenics or, or if not, he'll use his science in order to bolster any sort of mortar or preservation of life that he likes. Science has never really been an accurate tool, historically, has never really made any contributions to ethics, morality in any positive way. It's not something that's discovered. I like that actually. Um, so, so th that's actually an interesting piece because usually we have in our minds that you know um, we think of like older times as more barbaric times, or at least one can intuit that notion. Um, you know that there is ubiquitous kind of um, barbaric behavior and and less regard for for the sanctity of human life, and and on so many different um, dimensions, we can pinpoint what seems to be a. A, a more crude world previously. Um, and it seems to have gone hand in hand with the technological progress that we've had um, of the past recent centuries. It, there seems well, to be... Not, let's just wait till the nuclear winter. <laughs> yeah, but I'm saying, even in terms of your point, right, to your point, even though one could make that, could have that intuition, I mean, truthfully, if you arrive at the 20th century... I mean, the 20th century was the most murderous century in recorded history. I mean, definitely by brute count. By the gifts of science. By, by the very gifts of science, exactly. So you, you mentioned eugenics. Airplanes, jet planes, uh, nuclear bombs. And, and not just that. I mean, not just the technologies, which for sure. Um, but even the, the, the idealism of, for example, Nazism and how they justified 
um, their eugenics program, you know, that they basically saw it as a, a genetic cleansing program. Um, and, and, and similar, you know, all sort of sterilization programs in, actually that started in the U.S., um, also based on this idea of eugenics and all of it as an outgrowth of the recent um, innovation in, in the field of biology. And these were, these were justifications for the idealism of what they were trying to do. And so, I mean, to, to think about that as, as, as the ultimate, you know, the pinnacle of like scientific um, progress, but also comes with the pinnacle of, of, of evil, you know, which we saw in the 20th century. Right. In the name of, in the name of utility or, or ultimate man, we can eradicate the weak. Exactly. So, so you know, in, in philosophy, this is actually formalized as the is-ought problem. I think another, another uh, coinage of it is the fact-value distinction. Uh, but these basically come to say the same point, which is that, you know, um, it, it's the claim that, look, we have two worlds. We have the worlds of facts and we have the worlds of values. And so statements of like, what do I have in front of me? There's a book, this you know, th that the materials in front of me consist of these properties. All of the investigations of things that will yield facts, right? Science, for example, is in the domain of facts. Um, all these are statements of what is, right? Um, and, but then there's a totally se separate world, which are statements of values. So to say that, um, you know, life is worth living, that's a statement of value. And another way that we can say is that values actually implicitly, meaning they imply some sort of imperative on how to act. So there are actually statements not of is, which we said are statements of facts, but there are actually statements of ought. So right. when I say something like life is valuable, what you're implying there is that life ought to be, for example, protected. And so that would bring with it, you know, you can derive from something, from a value like that to say, for example, um, that if I have a bottle of poison in front of me, I shouldn't drink it, right? Because I have the value of the preservation of life. And so we can actually come to this distinction where, whereas, you know, the, the bottle of poison that I have in front of me and all of its properties, um, would constitute the world of facts, you know, that it is a fact that I have a bottle of poison in front of me and it is a fact that um, this will kill you with an X amount of time if, if you drink it. You know, that says nothing about whether I should value life, whether I should drink that poison or not. Those are two totally separate categories. And in philosophy, this is seen as, as an unbridgeable gap, um, the is-odd distinction, and that you can truthfully never ground any system of values you know, you can never have as your axiomatic firsts um, to any system of values, to any system of ethics, to any, any world of ought, you can never ground it in, in the world of is. And to attempt to do so would be a categorical error. And so, you know, practically speaking, is that no matter how many facts you come to know, no matter how, 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 how much progress we've made in the world of facts, that will never categorically yield any insight into the world of ought. At most, what it can do is assess your navigation once you have values. So that if I already have a value, like I value uh, the sanctity of life, for example, then the world of facts can help, me can help assist me with saying, by the way, if you drink this, you will die. But you can never ground your values in the world of facts. Right, so the, so the element that I was trying to bring out is that what we call Nauvoo in Judaism is that there has to be a commune from the outside where we're actually not discovering morality or good or evil. We're actually being gifted it, which is, of course, our internal narrative that uh, 
us three million strong people, God came to all of us and he spoke to us, Adam Harsi and I, and he told us of the Ten Commandments and such and laid the groundwork and foundations for society with some sort of context now to weigh the value structures of life. So, so you're saying that, that um, th- this idea of, uh, you know, basically that this is-ought distinction um, demands a communication from the outside in. Um, and that th- this is, is really what we, what we know as prophecy, right? And that prophecy in its essence um, implies not just the possibility of interaction between God and us, you know, between that which transcends the system and, and the system itself, which we call their universe. Um, you know, and, and the fact that there is interaction rather than just possibility of interaction, we actually grounded it in the previous episodes by saying that we actually know that by actually our definition of God, that just from the fact that we participate with being, um, you know, that we're sitting here even having this conversation, that is already um, a testament to the fact of, of interaction with God, you know, with that outside um, in terms of how we defined it. Um, but, but, but that prophecy makes that extra step that there's actually communication that comes from that outside in. Yeah, as, as, a, as a fundamental precept, if we're going to talk about a Torah and a, a, a guide for ultimately how we're supposed to live the most fruitful life, that, that wasn't self-discovered by one man or by one individual. It was brought to us as a people, as a whole, by the prime being, the first cause that commune. Now, it's not a simple thing to do. One would have to climb the mountain of perfection in terms of quality and meditation and understand how to access that, that, that nexus. But it's something that, as a people, we weren't, it wasn't one individual that came and had a prophecy and tried to bring that to the world. It was as a people, which as something unique to, and I don't bring this as a proof, but something as unique, that to, of all the tens of thousands of revealed religions, no one has an eternal narrative that claims that God came to the people and told them that this is the commune and this is the life that you should, you should travel on. All of the tens of thousands of world religions come as a single individual, or at most two, and they come and tell the teachings of their personal prophecy, which is something unique that I think somebody honest needs to deal with. Why, of all the copycat religions, is there only one religion with this eternal nar- internal narrative? Interesting. So, so, so meaning, meaning regardless of the actual truth value, of the claim, right? Regardless of that, just if we just inspect the the internal narrative, right? What each um, religion has as as their internal origin story. Um, there's exactly. only where you they know, got this value system from. Yeah, Jews are the only one that place that original um, that origin point. You know, that have as their origin story a a story of of mass communication between God and 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 six million and, and three million. Um, Jews, whereas everybody else um, have have a communication to one or at most a couple of individuals that then transmitted it um, a, as mediators to the rest. Right. It's not it's not sheep following along blindly be, behind the leader. It's actually something they experienced, and that being communicated to their children as a national historical event. I see. Very interesting. Um, so so let's 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 elaborate a little bit on on what you started with, which is that. The Torah is an instruction, um, is, is basically the structure for how to, for, for how to um, maximize our, our life here. Um, actually, the, the etymology of the word Torah itself is hurrah, right? It means, um, it, it means instruction, structure, 
Um, so can you elaborate a little bit on, on what kind of structure we're talking about? Um, so I, I think that there's, there's two general, you know, there's the big picture and then there's, we'll call it the technology or the, or the way of Torah, which we call halacha, which I think mis, mistranslated as generally laws. Halacha means to go. It's the way, which um, in Eastern philosophy uh, is like Tao, or Tao, that we're trying to come in line with the way this ultimate kind of f flow of existence itself that we're trying to align ourselves with. Um, so there's a lot of principles that the Torah will counsel us on that we have to properly balance all of these different elements within the dynamic world of life that it counsels us to weigh them properly and figure out the din, the proper judgment between all of those different principles to figure out the path that we should journey forward. So it's not so much a stagnant law in the sense that it's just telling us what to do, it's actually telling us a journey how to become, how to discover from what is to what we ought to be. So it's actually halacha is a journey. It's a, so the Torah is an instructions not for what we should do now, but for what we should be so that we can journey on something and become something different. So not doing charity, we're trying to become charitable. I see. So, I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's rich. There's a lot there to, to unpack. Um, so, so let's start with the idea of halacha as, as a journey, right? I mean, even, even where we derive that, right? Halichos um, olam lo, which the Pasuk, the verse says, um, the, the ways of the world are his. It actually says, don't read that the ways of the world, read that halachos. Right? Anybody who, who follows with halachos, olam lo, the, the world becomes his. Right? And so that play of word, um, of words between halacha and halicha right, is actually built into to, to how we, to, to how we think about the concept itself. Um, and so really we can think about um, this journey as kind of a, a system of navigation. Right? What we basically have is a, is a problem that we, we want to navigate. You know, th this, is, this is how... Um, some some thinkers put the problem of of, mor of morality in general, but as a navigation problem, right? That we actually want to steer ourselves um, into the direction of more well-being, into m the maximization of life, into um, a more meaningful life, a life worth living, and so on. And so we really just have to orient ourselves. What is the path um, to to veer ourselves away from from uh, you know um, needless suffering? And pain and self-destruction towards a, a world of 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 higher enlightenment and and participation with the life that is given to us, and, and so we can think of that navigation that navigational system as really the the foundation of what the Torah is for us, and that um, you, you know you spoke about there being an underlying flow, you know like the the Tao um, that we're trying to align ourselves with, and so you know this is an interesting piece that you know. Um, as an analogy, you know, in the same way that, you know, you can debate all you want, um, you know, the abstract theoretical physics, you know, in our science. But when we come with something like a GPS system that works, right, when we come with something like, like uh, processor yeah, longest case, 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 case study ever done, 3,600 years. We're an old eminent firm. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, I say, uh, the, the Jewish people as a case study is, is pretty remarkable. Something yes. that's something to remark on. Exactly, exactly. And so, and so if we, it, just to like finish that, that, that analogy, 
um, you know, if, if people, you know, if, if we see the great efficacy of science, like no matter how much of it we could get wrong, we know that at least we got something right from the fact that we're actually testing it against reality in our own technologies. Like when you build an airplane based on our understanding of aerodynamics, you know, you could have some flaws, but if it's flawed enough, the plane won't fly successfully. Yeah, right? and, no lift. Right? Exactly. And the fact that, that we actually have technology that works is actually a testament to the fact that at least we're approximating something right. And so we have this interesting idea, which is that like you can actually test the truth of something, or at least you, you know, um, some, the gradation of truth of something when it bumps against reality. And technology is, is that bumping against reality. In, in an analogous way, you know, we can speak about Torah and the, and the foundational principles, what, what kind of metaphysical picture the Torah gives and so on. But those, those are actually instantiated, um, right? They're realized in the actual technology, quote unquote, of the Torah, which is the halacha itself, right? How do we actually um, yield from, those, uh, from that worldview um, of, that the Torah provides us? How do we actually yield a workable, livable system for navigating our day-to-day lives. And, and, and those are kind of the technologies, quote-unquote, that the Torah provides. And in that, we, we bump against reality. Um, and so, like you pointed out, you know, we, this has been a system that has been in place for over 3,000 years. What, what, what also is an interesting element is that it's been very countercultural to many of, the, many of the host countries that we've been in. Persians, Madai, Greek, Babylonians. Romans. So it's not that we just acculturated and we just appropriated any sort of pagan value system and then, hey, look, we're still alive, but uh, we look exactly the same like our, our good Protestant brothers. We, we've actually lived in pretty diverse um, and, and pretty antagonist cultures. And yet still the Jew has survived and uniquely successful. Um, something that the world contribution, I think if we're being honest, the Jew has contributed a lot and we're not that large a number. We're relatively small, and we've always been small in number because they've been killing us so efficiently. That's interesting. You know that there is actually this uh, principle coined by, I believe, Nassim Taleb called the Lindy Effect. Um, it's this, it's this uh, interesting principle that he lays out, which is that if you want to predict, I think he, co- he, he puts it in the context of like, if you want to see how long a, a book will be popular for, you should actually look at the past, right? How long has this book already been popular for? In other words, if you want to determine the life expectancy mm-hmm. of something, look at its current age, right? So, for example, if a book written 150 years ago is so relevant today, you can assume that it'll be relevant in the next 150 years as well. And so there's something about the, 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 the age of a thing, right? The fact that, again, it's bumped against reality and stuck around so far through all of its twists and turns that you can assume the same thing in the future. This is the Lindy effect. Now, of course, Jews, you know, stand out among the nations for that, but they're not unique in that sense, right? So, for example, I can think about the Chinese, although they've gone through a whole host of different dynasties and revolutions and so on. The Chinese have, you know, have this, um, have also this, this, this longevity, longevity, yeah. exactly. And and actually, you know, I was told by somebody, by a friend recently who who, who was in China. That there's a, an, a you can actually feel the historicity in China. You can feel the longevity to their traditions and to them as a people, um, just by being there. But I think actually a unique element between us and us and, and uh, us and the and the East is we we pride tradition. 
which is something that uh, I think is almost totally lost in in America and European countries. That tradition is something that is clated and is something really that to be very proud of. You think that, that's, that, that the Chinese aren't traditional? Are, are very traditional. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're saying that's a similarity uh, that we have? To, that's another similarity? A, a similarity, that we have? right, exactly oh, right. That's I why the, the history there is very rich because history there is, is part of life. Exactly. There's a really broad, extended, backwards consciousness mm. that my, my great-great ancestors are even here with me today. Mm. And, and, and just to your point, like, to... to, to, to um, to contrast with, with the Chinese, though, um, is your point that actually the selective pressures um, have not been with the Chinese like they have the Jews. So, like, the Jews have not only um, been conquered multiple times, right? They've been kicked out of their land and had to travel in a diaspora of times, yeah. for, for two th over 2,000 years, right? And, and, and at every turn had this massive selective pressure against them in any society, in any period of time. Um, and, and that is, a, you know, and so we have actually been a truly cosmopolitan nation, but that actually has actually been attempted to be killed at every turn. Right. And so, I mean, that is a uniqueness, you know, if you couple the longevity with the, 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 um, the, the re rebellion, the, the, the revolts against the, the, um, you know, the, the, the selective pressures that, that is a truly astounding and I believe a, an absolutely unique feature to the Jewish people. Just on, on that note, um, historically, there has never been a people that have been exiled from their country and returned, mm. and there has never been a language lost yes. and rebirthed, yeah. and it happened twice with the Jewish people. Yeah, well, those two things happened together, right? Oh, yeah, of course, but, uh, but that both of those elements should be rebirthed. I mean, during the second commonwealth, the second base of Mikdash, we didn't speak Hebrew on the streets. We spoke Greek. You know, so that Hebrew should be rebirthed is not a given in coming back from the exiles. Um, it wasn't the Hebrew was was the language reserved only for Lashon Hakadosh for unique mm. unique opportunities for nexus. It wasn't something that was spoken in the markets mm -hmm. during the second Beis Hamikdash or before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is uh, that is um, that is absolutely unique. And you know, I, I mean, you just phrase the the if you just frame like the return to Israel in that light. I mean, it's, it's a heart-wrenching story, you know, like that you have a people that, that encode in all of their practice, right, this idea of the return to Jerusalem, right, and from, from where we face, you know, when we actually pray to, you know, what we include when we actually say our, our, our benching, our grace after meals, to, you know, even um, um, breaking a glass cup at our weddings, right, you know, everything is imbued with this idea, with this longing to return to our homeland, and that the fact that that was not only kept alive, but that that was actually realized 2,000 years later is an incredible story. Right, beautiful. I think, I think just to come back to the technology, um, particularly of halacha, there's two elements that, one is somewhat obvious, and the second is really very, very almost paradoxical, and, and really it becomes difficult to understand. Um, the first is obviously is the mitzvot, the mishpatim, which if not for the Torah giving, man would have come to aspects of don't murder, don't steal, property rights, so on and so forth, uh, family life, um, concepts. You know, the, where, where the Torah has, has given us counsel in those areas of life, but many of those things 
we probably would have come to, we would have learned, you know, uh, modesty from the cat, and, you know, mm-hmm. and we, would, we would have learned uh, brotherly love from the dog or whatever. From whatever animal world we would have lived, these things just on a side is something too interesting to note. You know, they when somebody sees their dog and they're acting, oh, oh, it's 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 kissing the other dog, and they go, <laughs> oh, it's so cute, it's acting like us. You know, it's exhibiting love, right. and they forget that we're mammals. We got it from them. Exactly. They didn't get it from us. Exactly. Right. <laughs> which, no, no, which that, is... that, that's a, that's a great feature, and, and that's a great um point, which is that it's a feature of our moral systems that they're actually grounded in biological in our right. in our in, in our biological systems. And so you actually Mammalian, see yeah. exactly you actually see not just nurturing, caretaking and everything else, but the principles of quote unquote altruism, you know, manifested in the animal kingdom itself. Yeah, dolphins I think also have those sometimes in monkeys too. Mm-hmm. But uh, so 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 the so the, the first element I think that when we're talking about Mishpatim, it becomes obvious. And the and the, the journey, the route, the path that it's trying to lead us towards, and ultimately the tower the, or the mountain that it's trying to get us to scale, we can see the path and we understand it. And then there's this other element, which is basically a head, hedge maze, which almost seems like it's actually counterintuitive and not productive or useful. And that we call the chukim. Now, I don't want to go into the, the exact elements of what, what the chukim are, what the decrees are, and what the boundaries are, but um, I think that's something that's unique to the, to the Torah in general. It, it wasn't just a philosopher's stone. It wasn't just a principles of useful ethics that were understood immediately at the time of the, of the Torah disseminating these value systems. The, life is very complex, and many times the travel up the mountain is actually all the way around the mountain. It has to go in this not straight path at all, and in fact, you have to go in this very roundabout way in order to deal with a lot of subconscious issues, a lot of emotional issues, a lot of different ethical issues that as the petri dish of this technology, man was totally unaware of when the giving of the Torah was given to them. You know, a few of them just come up come to mind as uh, animal rights. You know, in the ancient world, animal rights was laughable. In the Judaism, it obviously, Tsar Lechaim is a precept that at the time of the giving of it would have seemed totally aberrant to any sort of system of society or animals or animals. They're nothing more than grass, you know, that, that uh, they should be killed or used as our pleasure in any different kind of way. When the Torah comes and now slowly as ethical seedings for future paradigms, now, now slowly it's become part, of, part and parcel in humanity. So much so that if somebody kicks a dog, it's almost more enraging than if somebody kicks a human. Maybe in an extreme now, but uh, I, th- I think that the that this this element of the technology comes with it. That it wasn't just philosophy that the Torah mm. was introducing. It was introducing a guide uniquely given to us by someone who had inside information in the actual creation of the world, namely the first cause or the first being. That how he created man. He gave us an antidote for the elements, the ir- irreducible rascal that exists within humans, humans. He gave us an antidote for it. And that antidote was the Torah. I like that. So, so you're saying that part of like, you know, once we, once we grounded the idea of Torah in that there had to be a communication from the outside in um, because of this, this absolute barrier to, to moral knowledge 
um, which is that although we have access to a world of facts, it seems difficult to systemize the progress, you know, how you would actually test progress in, this, in the world of values, right? This is a distinction that, um, that is a serious um, problem for the quote-unquote advancement of moral systems. Um, and, so, and so in that communication, then by, the, by very definition of the necessity of that communication, you're going to have things that appear to us um, to be totally unknown, Right, you know that are that are in our blind spot. That sometimes um, even look counter. That even that will even look counter. Exactly. That, sometimes that's e yeah. even more the case. Right. That it will even depending look on counter. where the society is with their own development. And truthfully, how, how I mean, I mean, truthfully, you know, this is a piece where where I actually f find that the 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 value of the Torah lies. Right. It's in those epistemic unknowns that the real value of the Torah is exposed. So, sure. for example, you know, we can speak about so many things in with today's modern ethic that align with the Torah. You know, people have an understanding of the, the basic sanctity of, of human life. Um, right. And, and, all, and the you right know, of the individual, the right of yeah. the individual, the right of women, property and rights. so on, property rights, right? There's a lot of things that we can find alignment. However, it's those specific pieces that we find that are countercultural. Like, you know, one that comes to mind explicitly is homosexuality, right? Without getting into the specifics of it, I mean, it is clearly countercultural, right? Uh, definitely in the past 50 years. Sure. Um, and I find that that is exactly the place where you actually find insight from the Torah. It's exactly in the places that are counter your suppositions, right? That are counter your cultural norms um, that you actually have insight. Otherwise, everything else, what is there added by the Torah? Right, and like in science, you know, you never find uh, new discoveries and, oh, that's what I expected. New discoveries start with, that's odd. Exactly. Right, where, where, where it's, it's counter to what the paradigm really is suggesting. But I think just an example, just a concrete example where, where this really plays out, um, I, I think in Greek or Aristotelian golden path, temperance being this absolute um, kind of principle that everything should be tempered, you find that also in, in, in Confucius and things like that, the golden path is kind of emergently discovered or... or <laughs> Uh, independently by almost every philosopher, I would think. But uh, anyway, so this idea of temperance um, should should lead into all values, um, arrogance, anger, greed, lust. Um, but what's unique is actually the Torah counsels us on two particular ones that logic would not dictate. Logic would say temperance should be on all virtues, including arrogance and anger. Uh, whereas the Torah tells us some, somewhat counter to what logic would suggest is that no, no, in those two, this, there has to be a standard deviation towards lessening arrogance and lessening anger. Understanding the, the innate nature of man, he can't be temperate in every element of life. And actually in anger and in arrogance, there has to be one standard deviation below the standard deviated line. So, so in order to that, just as one element, I just say that, that um, reason wouldn't dictate that. And to, reason would almost even reject it, that, that you're violating the golden rule of moderation by saying there's these two fundamental elements in life, arrogance and anger, that those two have to be tempered, not towards temperance, but below, slightly below the, the perfect moderation between the, the two extremes, mm. which just as one concrete example, but mm -hmm. uh, there mm -hmm. could be thousands, but, but yeah. the, just as one concrete example, we see that the Torah is introducing a guide and a value system that is really trying to get you to become complete, to become whole, 
to have this element of where we're walking. In. And in the, in, the, in the Talmud, it brings out that it says that ever since the, the second commonwealth was destroyed, the Shekhinah, the presence of this divine light and this guiding, this, this invisible hand that's guiding all of existence, can only be experienced in the, in the Arba Amos, in the four feet of the man who keeps halacha. So it's actually we're trying to get ourselves in line with this guiding force mm. that is guiding what we spoke about last week, this ultimate unity. And if we can get ourselves understanding, and easier said than done, if we can get ourselves and align ourselves with that absolute judgment and that absolute way of life, um, that's really the goal of the Torah. It, it's not, it's not, it, the goal is not to be doing things, but it's really to be journeying on this path, very much like Avram, lech lecha, which is, of course, the, the, same, the same words as halacha. But um, we're trying to discover through the Torah, and we're trying to journey on that path. And, and very much so, the Torah is not an intellectual game. It's not something we just study and we play with and we kind of come to, good question, nice answer, ah, beautiful. Ah, it's, it's not a math game. Um, it says anyone who learns Torah and doesn't try to bring it into the physical plane of life, um, better he was never created because he's, he's actually working against that very force. Uh, the wiser somebody is and the less he does, uh, the more destructive he is, not the less. I mean, I actually think this is very much related to Hanukkah, right? If you think about the, the context of Hanukkah for a second, right? I mean, we speak about Hanukkah as a time of darkness, and it, it, not, just, not just philosophically a time of darkness, because it introduced a lot of uncertainty into our own systems. Um, it, it, it literally is placed during the darkest time of the year. And the reason why it's so right. dark it, is because if you think about the contrast between the Greek um, to everybody else, the Persians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, before them, um, were really, you know, and you compare their systems with the systems of the Torah, we're talking about a bunch of chimps relative yeah. To, yeah. To, to a system of the Torah, right? We're, we're talking about a bunch of barbaric apes. And so really, yeah. I mean, when we, talk, when, we, when we ask the question of which system are we more inclined towards, of course, I mean, you're talking about the, the, the clearly more civilized system. We have massive... Uh, literacy rates in a time where, you know, that was, I mean, opposite of the norm. Um, we have dedication towards philosophy, towards exploration in law, um, yeah. in ethics, in, in animal Justice rights. Justice in general. Justice, exactly. And, and compared with his barbarians, I mean, there's no threat. But for the first time, you had the Greek that actually, you know, we have the fathers of philosophy, of art, of theater, of democracy, um, of, of ethics. Right. Um, these are, for the Frederick. first time... Things like that. Extreme threats to our system, and that's and in that sense, it was an actual uh, a time of extreme darkness. Because if we're looking at the Torah as a toolkit, as a system for higher effectiveness in the world, that could have worked until the Greek. Because if you're just talking about the Torah as a toolkit, then you can actually exchange toolkits with right. the, with the Greeks, and that's. You know, that's yeah, the, the, the surge model, of... Something better, take, yeah. take the new model. Yeah. Right, and that, that's the surge of so many Hellenist Jews, right? The first time we were faced with massive assimilation rates, um, like n no time before. And, and I think that that forced us to actually look at what is the Torah actually offering besides effectiveness. And that effectiveness is really incidental to its main piece. And its main piece is what we actually come out of Hanukkah with, in, in that Hanukkah is actually the true Jewish enlightenment, right? And I mean that right. like as a pun, but also literally, it is our Jewish enlightenment, right? Not the enlightenment of the 1800s, 
the, the Jewish Haskalah, right? But not even the Enlightenment of the 1700s in the secular world, right? And, and the contrast between the Enlightenment in the secular world with what happened on Hanukkah is exactly the contrast of the Greek and us. That for the first time, I mean, right, whereas in, in, the, in the enlightenment of the, 18, of the 1700s, we speak about an intellectual enlightenment, an enlightenment of a higher sophistication of more, of more capable tools and methods of thinking and so on. The light of Hanukkah is actually an internal light. It's actually a, right. the, the light of consciousness turned on, right? The light that is the grounding of all meaningfulness, where we actually were forced to deal with, not for the first time, not with intellectual advance, but conscious advance, right? Advance in meaningfulness. And that's why, you know, the entire stress of Hanukkah is not even on the war that was miraculous. The guerrilla warfare waved, um, um, you know, waged by the Hasmonean dynasty against the Syrian Greeks. It's actually the, all the emphasis is about how we, we came back to the service of the temple um, with the lighting of the menorah. And that that lighting of the menorah, although minuscule in physical life, um, represented the, the, the totality of the, the conscious torch. light. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Of the eternal the torch. The eternal torch, yeah. That is flaming inside of us, right? That, that it was a switch in meaningfulness and conscious experience. And, and that, that's why the war of Hanukkah is actually a spiritual war, not even an intellectual war. And to see it as an intellectual war is to miss the entire point. It's actually the fact that our enlightenment was actually a conscious enlightenment, an enlightenment yeah, of an Jewish consciousness idea. rather than yeah. an enlightenment of intellectual um, advanced. Uh, I think one more... One more element that just to me is 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 so remarkable. Um, talking about modern societies, uh, we're extremely successful in technology and science and discovery. Um, one area that everyone will agree we totally fail and drop the ball is family. We're not that good at family life. Um, divorce rate is very high. Uh, of those fifty percent that are still still married, probably should most of them should be divorced. Um, that's something that we never really got right. And, and I blame it partially on our Greek inspiration of individuality, because individuality really fights the family. And it's just a remarkable providence that there was one family, Matisio and his five sons, that saved and conquered the Greek empire. They said that family would beat the Greeks, which is so incredible, of course, obviously, the Shabbos candles and the mm. menorah, and it's the house. Mm -hmm. um, the whole celebration of Hanukkah is really the answer to the Greeks, that Greek is extremely useful, that philosophy, and extremely good for self, and extremely good at developing self, and it makes you into an Olympian. But it takes the torch out of the home and brings it to the gymnastics. It brings it to individual achievement, indi in individual glory. And when, and when really Matisio stood up for his family, him and his family, it said that family is, the, is what really champions the Greek philosophy they never really were able to get that right. I mean, of course, in our modern day, I think anyone's going to be very honest with ourselves. That's one area of life that we just don't have worked out yet. Mm. And which is, of course, Hanukkah is celebrated on the family. It, as a family, we like together. It's very much a, a celebration of individuality has its place. Um, but ultimately, family is where real societies and real light is brought into the world. I love that. That's that's uh, that's beautiful, um, and, and I mean, you know, it's a well-known thing that, you know, uh, communism destroyed families, right? Had yeah. you know, children reporting on their parents and so on. But yeah. I mean, Sick. what is what is yeah. what is more subtle is how individualism 
destroyed families, right? How, how the West destroyed families on the opposite extreme, right? So whereas communism wanted to destroy the nuclear family to blend into a larger, uh, a larger whole, you know, quote unquote, it, it was a tyrannized whole, but it's a larger whole. Um, the West wanted to actually reduce the family unit into the individual unit. Um, right. And they we went from we to I, which, which is really a glorification I and, and a perfection of I. The, the, the issue is that it, it becomes self-anointment instead of light that can be shared by everyone in the room. And I, think that, and, I, and, and I think that goes yeah. to, your, to, your, to your previous point about the, um, the fact that, I mean, I think that that's the, the, one of the malices facing our current society, which is that this ultra-progressivism, which is that, you know, in trying to always revolt against the past, you lose all of the value, all of the meaning that has been accumulated intergenerationally um and and whereas previously i mean and whereas when when this this progressive urge is um is tamed with a more traditional urge you have evolution right development progress when it's totally decoupled from the traditional urge from the from the desire to serve as a continuity for what was for what was right it becomes rather than an evolution it becomes a revolution and and you know that insistence on today, like throwing out everything of the, of the past, um, yeah. is kind Family of the extreme. It. Yeah, yeah, they literally exactly. threw out the baby with the, with, with the bathwater. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, that's right. Um, yeah, but but I think um, just to I think close in on this point, um, you know, I think it's important that although yes, the Torah is a system for navigating life, and yes, I, I believe that you know. Um, it, it is a system that maximizes life, that maximizes our participation with being, um, with our own lives, um, and, and so on. Although it optimizes all of these, that should not be the grounding for our following the Torah. The real grounding is the relationship with being, right? The relationship with God that is the source right. of all being. And that right. God, and, and so that capital E existence as instantiated in every piece of our lives, right? All of our relationships and all of our friends and all of our family and all our interactions are imbued um, with that presence of God in that. And that, you know, we, we're so focused sometimes on, on the constant um, doing of the West, you know, that we also always have to achieve more, do more, aspire for more, that sometimes we forget about the being, uh, you know, in, in the becoming, right? You know, there's not just doing, there's being. Together those make becoming, but the, 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 the actual goal is to actually be, feel the relationship, with that underlying existence that is the source right. for all that we are and all that there you. is. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, 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 you know, I mean, just to end it on a Hanukkah note, um, we have an interesting thing that after we light the candles, we actually say, Haneros Halalu, uh, you know, we say that and we say, Ein anu, uh, ein lanu we, we actually not allowed to utilize the candles. Huh, yeah. right? For the first time, Stop focusing so much on utilization, on, on the toolkit of the Torah. And let's actually focus on, you're only allowed to see it, to be with it, to share with it. I mean, and I think that it's ironic that of all, of all things, fire, as the ultimate kind of symbol of tool making, right, of tools, it's the kind of like right. the, the phase shift of humanity's, you know, humanity's domestication of fire was a complete phase shift in our species. Um, we grab fire, which is the symbol of tool making, of, of how to terraform the planet in our image, right? of how to utilize the world to extend our capacities. And we actually say, you, you know that thing, that very thing, I want you to light it? And, and that very thing cannot be used. You can only 
see it. What's you amazing really is you know the, the Greek Prometheus stealing it from the stealing it from the gods and bringing fire down to us. It's as if we give it back. Mm. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Right. So so whereas that's a top down, this one is a bottom up. Like this one, the yeah, flame is yeah. coming well, from. No, up. this is not for our use. This is not for our use. Yeah. Nice. Oh, it's I see. It's not for our use. We're giving it back. Oh, I like that. I like that. Already. I think this is a, a good place to all the best. Take it easy.